0: Would you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 6? We're continuing to work our way through the Lord's Prayer, as it is called. And it's not recorded in Matthew, but one of the other four Gospels. It is recorded that the disciples had actually said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, that's not because they were wholly ignorant of prayer and never done it in their lives, but they were seeing and hearing something in his prayer life that was very different from theirs. They were steeped in Jewish tradition. Their prayers were probably even steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms in particular, and and there are many good things about all that, but there there must have been something of a very personal, fervent, uh, intimate nature about the prayers of Jesus that was compelling to them, and so in response to that question, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, and so we've spent these Sundays in January looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we come today Uh, to the particular petition in verse 12, but let me begin reading in verse 9. You follow along. I'm going to read through verse 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power, its authority, for the life that it brings to our hearts. Thank you that you have designed it uh, to reach into the deepest places of our beings, places that we are fearful to go, places that we would never even want another person to go. And yet, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this word goes deep into that place where soul and spirit come together and it reveals to us the hidden motives. It reveals the sin and rebellion. It exposes the confusion, the doubt, the fear. Everything is laid bare before your holy eyes. And the word is a tool that you use to expose ourselves to ourselves as we really are. Oh, Lord God, would you do that? Not that we may feel shame and humiliation, and be left in that, but that we may acknowledge our sin and our rebellion and experience the power of your forgiveness. Even as we pray for your forgiveness, Lord, that request assumes that you will reveal to us our sin that offends you. That's a terrifying thought for many here right at this moment, but, oh, Lord God, would you... Would you summon them in your great grace and mercy and cause them to know today that to confess sin of every kind is actually to open the door to powerful reconciliation, to restoration, to forgiveness and cleansing, to strengthening of soul and spirit, to life. Please, Lord God, Lead us now, lead us now in this pathway of repentance and faith and forgiveness that we may finally know true peace and joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've been thinking all week in preparation for this sermon how there are so many aspects of it that our, our world needs. And we've seen headlines this week that, again, just cause us to moan and sorrow and groan. There's such evil that permeates the world, and you just never know when it's going to show up, do you? And when it does, it, just, it almost seems like it, it, it deepens and darkens in its expression. And part of the great sorrow in our hearts these days is that Even in our our society at large, there don't really seem to be clear pathways back to peace, back to personal reconciliation between parties that have offended one another. There doesn't seem to be a way to restore healthy, whole relationships where even people with very different ideas and opinions could come together and just enjoy being together in one place at one time. It's not just a political thing. It's not just even the, the tragic story that unfolded this week of, of a legal nature where you have some bad people who wield community authority and use it in a, in a murderous way. And there's so much finger pointing at this moment and, and accusations fly around and, and all kinds of reports even where, where we put our own personal spin on it and, it and it just stokes a fire that nobody can seem to extinguish. It's a painful moment for us. And I think in some ways we've become like a, a gang of playground bullies who decide for the whole class what's right and what's wrong, what's cool and accepted, what won't be tolerated, who's in and who's out, and yet even the gang of bullies don't like each other. And I think one of the things that frustrates us significantly right now, and this is... This is a tragedy that's almost equal to the sin itself is that the way we deal with the really bad stuff in society generally is that we just try to get rid of these people. Cancel culture, that's the term you hear. You say something I don't like, I cancel you. We don't like your group, we cancel you. And if we can't quite cancel you, we just shout you down until you're like, I, I'm done. What hope is there in that? Jesus shows us a much better way. And not just marginally better. It's eternally better. And really, it's the only way. It's the only way that that we can experience uh, a power that goes beyond human expectation and understanding. I mean, what Jesus is talking about here is a supernatural work. But it's powerful hope. And when practiced in the way that Jesus is teaching us here, and then we'll look at a few other passages, and, and there, there are just scores and scores of scriptures that we can go to this morning where God paves this beautiful pathway before us to say, you know, there is a way to be re- reconciled one to another. There is a way to be restored in relationships that have been blown apart by really bad stuff. There's a way, but we must be willing to walk that way. You know, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness in the Gospels. In the four Gospels, the word forgive or forgiven occurs 51 times in 39 different verses. If you just did a concordance search later today and, and said, where, you know, plug it in on your computer or whatever, or the old-fashioned, pull your Strong's concordance off the shelf. And you began to search through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would see multiple discussions that Jesus had or, or sermons, as this one seems to be a part of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks specifically about forgiveness. But here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us first to pray for the Father's forgiveness and then make some interesting comments about how we're asking God to do for us what we are already doing for other people. So let's jump in and talk about forgiveness. Look at verse 12 with me, Matthew 6. We are praying for God's forgiveness. The simple petition before us, forgive us our debts. Now jump to verse 14 because there's a synonym that appears there as Jesus, after giving that little lesson about prayer, comes back and says, if you forgive others, their trespasses. So we have two different terms that the Lord uses for our sin. The one is debt that refers to our sin, and the other is a trespass. Now what are we talking about there? Well, isn't it interesting that God uses the terminology uh, of economics? To refer to sin and we we've been over this before as a church family but if you're new with us let me just encourage you to, to think carefully about uh how the lord teaches this that sin really in and truly does create a debt sin incurs a real debt with god and with the offended person and that's some of the tension that you're feeling in your soul when you rise up and say that's not right And whether it be something you've received, it's not right for you to speak to me in that way. You're actually speaking out of the reality of a debt that sinful or harmful words created for you. That's not right that so-and-so should do such-and-such or that, that they should have treated me in that way. That sense of righteous indignation that rises up in an economic way is a reflection of the debt sin creates. Now, the second word, trespass, you know this, this term. Uh, we, we sometimes don't think as simply as the Lord intends for us to, but trespassing is simply stepping over a boundary and entering an area that, that you shouldn't be a part of. Uh, we lived uh, in South Carolina for many years before we moved out here, and we lived in one particular home. How long were we there in Cunningham? 15 years? 15 years. And when we purchased the house, the property itself Uh, There was a a property line established somewhere, but our backyard just kind of like bled into this easement that the subdivision behind us owned. And it was great. It was woods. Uh, There was a spillway from a little pond that had been built there. We knew that no houses or structures would ever go on that. Our kids loved playing in the woods, and um, it, it was a great day until one Sunday afternoon. Uh, when the president of the HOA Association from Walden Pond made his way across the property line through our backyard and to our front door and uh, proceeds to uh, let us know that our swing set was three feet over the property line. It had been there for years, and it really wasn't a big problem, but then he proceeded to tell us we're installing a fence on the property line. And there were three houses, ours being one of them, that shared that property line, and all of us were about to get a back fence. Then he told us how there were just some, you know, ne'er-do-well kids in the neighborhood who were coming up to the pond and fishing, and they shouldn't be there. And he had tried to run them off, and they'd come back, and so the only remedy was to put a fence there. So unintentionally, you know, we were trespassing with our swing set, so I went out that afternoon, and you know, just moved the thing back on our side of the property line. The fence went up, and wouldn't you know it, within days, somebody had cut that fence. (laughs) It was the 'er ne'er-do-wells. Now, I have a pretty good idea of who it was. But I never actually saw them do it, and neither did Kristen. And that fence got cut and repaired, cut and repaired, (laughs) cut and repaired. At least three times we're aware of. And the property owner made another visit to our house, or the the HOA president made another visit to our house. I wasn't there that day, but he talked to Kristen and said, well, could you keep an eye out? I think we know who it is. Like, watch, see if it's those kids coming through. And Kristen's like, I got four little kids. You know, I'm not going to be your... Well, she didn't say that to him, but basically she was a little more polite. But, you know, it's like we're... We're not going to guard your property line like that. If we see somebody, you know, yes, maybe we'll say something. But it, it was a reminder to me that we ourselves were unintentional trespassers with a swing set, easily remedied. But then you had another crew that were intentionally trespassing, making it known that they didn't like the border that had been established, the barrier that the Walden Pond HOA Association had established to guard their their little pond that's what trespassing is the problem is in our day and age where God really does have the authority to establish boundaries there are all kinds of people who say first of all I don't even think I believe in God second of all if there is a God I'm not accountable to him I'll set my boundary where I want to and God your creator says sorry it doesn't work that way and my friends some of you today are living your life as if you're the boundary maker and you're not The creator is the boundary maker, or let me be more specific, he's the lawmaker. And if he calls sin, sin, then we should start defining those activities as sin. And when he defines boundaries for our sexuality, or our business dealings, or our truth-telling, our love for one another, then we need to honor those boundaries. But if you violate those boundaries, you are guilty of trespassing. And the problem is, in the Bible, it's not just a matter of, you know, like a civil disagreement that has to get sorted out. God will call all of us before His judgment seat one day and hold us accountable to His law. And if you're guilty of sin and trespassing, then you will pay the debt. It's a big debt. It's bigger than you or I could actually pay. The, when you offend an infinite, eternal God, you have created an infinite and eternal debt. You see, the nature of the offense is not measured just in terms of what you have or have not done. It's measured in terms of the one you have offended. Many people stumble over this truth, that they are accountable to God, that they must live within the boundaries of his law, or that they're guilty before him when they do sin. We don't like to be told we're lawbreakers. One of the tragic things in society today is people try to huddle up with people who agree with them and it makes you feel better for a little while if you can find enough people who say well fornication isn't sin no adultery no big deal sex outside of marriage that's that's so old fashioned old school well you can find people who agree with you but then you've just found a group of lawbreakers still accountable to god still guilty of sin still walking around with an enormous debt what a kindness of God, though, to step into our world and say, let's talk, there's some difficult news that you need to hear, but it will save your life if you will listen to me. We shared with our church family the news that Kristen and I have learned recently of her cancer. And I will tell you, it's been hard to hear the news. We're thankful that all the testing is done. Treatment begins this week. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you. you have poured out your hearts in love and, and support, and we thank you for that. Honestly, we would rather not know the things that we know right now. We'd like to continue living life as we always have. But refusing to listen to the medical team at the Huntsman Cancer Clinic is actually a deadly decision. Oh, the cancer's not going to kill Kristen today or tomorrow, next week, May, probably not even this year or next year, or maybe even three, four, five more years. We, we have no idea. But if this deadly disease is not treated and ultimately removed, she will die from it. So when the medical doctor walked into that first big appointment several weeks ago and said, here's what we know, we were listening very carefully. And then when the doctor says, now this is the plan forward and there is a cure, we really listened. We didn't walk out of there and say, how hateful is that doctor to say to you, you have cancer. I don't see evidence of cancer. You feel pretty good overall. You know, and for our age, we're going to have a few aches and pains. Like, we, you, you're good. I, you, I mean, it's absurd for me to, to say, even suggest that we would have conversations like that. The doctor wasn't hateful. The, doc, the doctor is actually showing a kind of love. And my dear friend, God is actually showing you extraordinary love to step into your world and say, can we talk? You actually have something growing in your soul right now that if left untended will destroy you for eternity. God is kind to show us our sin. And his love overflows because he he never wants to just leave us in our sin and go, oh, fix it. Now that would have been an unkindness if the doctor had said, here's what all the testing and scans show. Good luck to you. But God doesn't ask you and me to remedy our own sin no he actually invites us to receive his forgiveness the biblical term for forgiveness that occurs here speaks very specifically of releasing from the obligation to pay the debt so the debt we created by our sin that really we should be responsible to pay for god says if 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 you will humble yourself before me and own that sin and acknowledge it all I will actually release you of the obligation to pay it. Another term we use for that is pardon. He pardons the sin. Now, go over to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. You're in the book of Matthew, and if you'll keep turning toward the back of your Bible, you will find the book of Ephesians. It's one of a number of letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to first century churches. And in Ephesians 4... Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. There's the contrast to the things in verse 31 that he's saying, be done with those things. Like, Put all that away from yourself. Well, if we're not going to hang on to our bitterness and wrath and anger and such, what should we do? Well, here it is. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now, here it comes, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, here's the power of true Christian forgiveness. It's not based on the merit of the individual who's offended us. It's not based on their, sincere, on their sincere apology. It's not based on promises that they may make that I, I'll never do this again. I'll never speak those unkind words or hate, say those hateful things again. No, the Apostle Paul is showing us very clearly that God's forgiveness is tied directly to Jesus Christ. And if we, if we continue reading, not just in Ephesians, but consider the whole of the gospel message, we know that God forgives us because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why we sing those beautiful songs about the cross. God doesn't forgive the debt our sin creates because of anything that you or I do, have done, or will do. He forgives us because Jesus Christ went to the cross, died the death we deserve to die, shed his blood as a sacrificial offering, and God receives that blood payment to clear the debt. One author writes, forgiveness is never based upon the merit of the sinner. And I say, hallelujah, I'm so glad. I mean, what what merit do I have to offer God to say, here, I'll trade you this for your forgiveness, even as a pastor? I mean, am I going to trade him all of my sermons through the years? You know, where he's like, oh, good job, yeah, I'll trade you. I'll give you forgiveness because you've preached enough good sermons. Hardly. Hardly. Oh, I put put enough in the offering plate over the years. That's that's not going to merit it. The only currency that can accomplish the kind of forgiveness that you and I truly need is the blood of Jesus. And it's been offered. That's why that symbol hangs there. The cross is so precious, so rich, so powerful. Now, there are other religions that teach that if you do enough good things and add them to your confession, that God will forgive you. Some who even suggest that for certain kinds of sin, uh, you will suffer in hell for a period of time, but then you know, God will say that's enough and pull you out of hell. Or some who say, you can seek God's forgiveness, but you can never be really sure he's forgiven you, but do all the good works you can and add it to that, and God will forgive you at some point. I mean, it's just squishy and weird, it's bizarre, it's distorted, some of it's downright heresy, all of it, really, because it's not true. God doesn't negotiate the terms of forgiveness and say, you give this, I'll give that, and we'll have forgiveness. No, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. And he goes on in 1 John to say, the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us from all sin. The blood is, it was, it is, and will be our hope for forgiveness. But it's, it's there, it's offered. And that's what we're praying for. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. I'm thankful that God doesn't simply write off the debt, but releases it through Christ. And I, I, think to, I think that for us today, we need to just rest our hearts in the purchasing power of the blood of Christ. We need to meditate on the, the true debt relief that flows from Calvary's mountain. What forgiveness is released from the cross? My friend, some of you it, just even wrestle with this in the memories of the past, maybe even present things that are still in your heart, just flood your soul with guilt and overwhelm you with shame. You know, there's genuine relief from that at the cross. And when you are willing to admit it, specifically, freely, honestly, and humbly, then, then the, the floodgates of God's forgiveness are opened. The problem is some of us are like, I'm not that bad. I haven't sinned. I don't need forgiveness. Oh, you'll never know. Will you admit that today? Will you own the fact that you really have broken God's law? Whether unintentionally. Say it's not that big of a deal. Swing sets three feet over the border. Well, when God says that's the border, don't cross it even by an inch. You're guilty. Others of you, to go back to that analogy, are like the 'er ne'er-do-wells. You keep showing up and cutting the fence and going, I will cross that border. I will do what I want to do. I will think what I want to think. Both are guilty before God. Both are in need of God's forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Now, the Lord adds something to that and says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So, to be really technical, we're not praying for the forgiveness of others. We're acknowledging the fact, though, that as recipients of this remarkable mercy we are people who extended to others now look at verses 14 and 15 go back to matthew 6 if you're still open there to ephesians 4 go back to matthew's gospel again because jesus gives us a little more to think about in relationship to the forgiveness of others if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses and one of the questions that arises here is like well is there any hope for us then and could I lose my salvation or is God saying if I come to him, uh, I've got to make sure all of the, the things that have ever been done against me have been forgiven those other people. I mean, it can get really complicated and confusing. Yes, it can, but don't complicate it. There's just a simple truth here being put forward. I appreciate the words of author and pastor John MacArthur who says this is a prayer for parental not judicial forgiveness. And if you could read the whole context, you'd see that he, he is making a little distinction to help us understand that, that God is not saying he would refuse to justify you in salvation before, uh, not until you had forgiven everybody else on your list. But um, MacArthur goes on to say what Jesus is actually saying here is tantamount to, quote, if you refuse to forgive, your heavenly Father will discipline you severely for your sin of unforgivingness. And I think that's helpful. Now, turn over to Matthew 18. Matthew 6, keep going beyond that. Because Peter asked a question, and, and Matt made brief reference to this just a few minutes ago. And it's important for us, I think, to just take a few minutes to look at this passage. In Matthew 18, Peter asks a question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And that was actually a pretty generous offer. Because the standard was three times. So, you know, Peter doubles that and adds one. And I think it's a question we all wrestle with because we've been sinned against by some of the same people over and over. And you're like, when, when do we just say enough is enough? But look at what the Lord says. So if you're in Matthew 18, Jesus begins to tell him a story uh, after saying in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Wow. Now here's the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I mean, that's a laughable number. I know that ta- we don't think in terms of talents. Uh, that, that would be, as, as one author wrote, 10,000 talents was equivalent to a billion days' worth of peasant wages a billion days' worth of peasant wages. I mean, there wasn't even that much money in circulation in in Israel at that time. Jesus is exaggerating the point to let the weight of this reality fall on the hearts and minds of his disciples. Let's read on. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made That's that's justice, that's fair. It's tragic, but it's right. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now think about that for a moment. Really? I mean, he's gonna have to jump into some kind of network network marketing deal that nobody's ever seen before. Like he's gonna have to have the whole earth in his downline to generate that, that kind of funds. He can't. Now, he's sincere, but it, it, this, this is nonsense. I'll pay it all. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, pause there. That's the equivalent of 100 days' wages. That's not a small sum. It's significant. If you wanted to donate three months' worth of salary to my personal household at this moment, I would receive it with joy and thanksgiving. might even hug your neck. That's a sizable sum. So his fellow servant owes him something, but look at what happens. The same servant went out, verse 28 tells us, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Have you heard that before? Yep. so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow, that's a kicker, isn't it? What a story. The king forgives or releases the servant from all obligations to pay the debt out of mercy. He had pity on him. And then the servant who's been forgiven the billion days' worth of, of wages goes out and finds his friend who owes him several thousand dollars, so to speak. And isn't it interesting that that Jesus describes, I mean, this creates a vivid image as if putting his hands around his throat to strangle him and saying, pay what you owe. And when the king confronts him, he asks a question that all of us should wrestle with concerning our own issues of forgiveness. Should we not have mercy on our fellow servants as the king has had mercy on us? That's a hard one. Because I... We all know why we refuse forgiveness. When we hold on to that, it restores a sense of power where, where we lost it as a victim. It gives me a sense of control, even a sense of justice, where justice may not have been served. At least in this one little corner of the world, I have control as judge and jury to sentence and even in my heart, execute that person for what they did to me. And the choice to not forgive may even anesthetize the deeper pain in our souls and hearts for a little while. It may, but it's actually not the long-term solution because unforgiveness always, always sours into bitterness, among other things. And bitterness, even like an undetected cancer, will eventually grow and kill you. It doesn't kill the other person. Doesn't bring justice on the other person. It destroys you. And in the same way that your heavenly father doesn't want sin to kill you, he doesn't want your unforgiveness to destroy you. Isn't he kind? And isn't it amazing that he is actually saying, in the way that I've forgiven you for Christ's sake, you are free and authorized to forgive others. Some of you are in the king's prison simply because you won't forgive another person. And day after day, you stand behind the bars of your bitterness crying out against that fellow servant, pay what you owe. And though the debt is real, it's not in your power to collect it. Jesus didn't include this in the story, but the truth is the king who shows this kind of mercy is also a debt collector. And those who humble themselves, he freely forgives, clears the debt, removes the record of it. But for those who never humble themselves or repent and seek his forgiveness, he will exact the full payment one day. And for those of you who are struggling with bitterness, I get it. We, we all understand that. It, it seems so unfair that a person could do or say or work in those particularly situations evil ways and the damage is done to you and you're kind of left holding the debt and you say, what do I do with this? Trust the king who is your father. Nobody gets away with anything. For a time, and right now it feels like they're getting away with it. Justice has not been done. But in your heavenly father's economy, justice is always done. It may be slow in coming, but it is sure. He will get what is owed. And he will restore to you everything that's been lost trust him so this is our father king he's very serious about forgiving you and me for our sins praise god and he's very serious about you and me forgiving others one last thought and with this we'll close jesus is not only teaching us to be a forgiving people but then after this he will show us one of the seven Words from the cross, as we sometimes describe them, is the direct outworking of all that Jesus is teaching us. And he shows us the power of praying for the forgiveness of others and offering it and extending it even when they're not asking for it. Because while he suffered the greatest injustice that has ever been committed in human history, while he endured the most shameful forms of abuse that anyone ever knew, while he hung naked on Calvary's cross, exploited and exposed to to the jeering, leering, mocking, murdering crowd around him, it was at that moment that he cried, among other things, Father, forgive them! They don't know what they do. What a powerful moment. What a beautiful heart. You would think that he might cry for the justice. But as he was bearing the cost and considering the weakness of these humans who had committed that great, greatest treason ever committed, he recognized they won't be able to bear it. Hell is too hot. Eternity is too long. The torment is too great. Father, forgive them. Jesus took the torment that we earned and deserved. He bore hell for you and me. And he did it so that we might be forgiven and that we might be able to forgive. What a Savior. If your sin is greater than you can bear today, just run to him right now. Jesus, I'm a great sinner I need your great forgiveness, and and the floodgates will open. Some of you who are wrestling with an unforgiving heart toward another person, can you stand at the foot of the cross, and as you look upon the Savior who died for you and shed his blood, think first of all that you have been forgiven. Can you really withhold that forgiveness from others that you've received? The problem is we start to compare our sins one to another. Don't get stuck in that trap of thinking that, well, my sin is not as great as theirs and what they did is really, really bad. And it is. It probably is. We, I'm not trying to justify it at all. But here, here's the challenge. Or I should say, here's the real question. Is the power of Christ's blood to, is sufficient to pay their debt and yours? And the answer is yes, it is. That's why you and I back to Ephesians 4.32, can, as God, for Christ's sake forgave you and me, we can begin to forgive others for Christ's sake. I know for some of you, that's gonna be a big step of faith. It, It may even feel like a little wrong to you because you'll feel like you're minimizing the sin that's been done. You're minimizing the consequences. That's another conversation. And, and if you're unsure about that, let's talk. I want to relieve your heart. Forgiveness is not the same as you just kind of magically erase all the hard consequences and, and important things that flow out of that. But, but you can walk out of here saying, Lord, all that debt that their sin created to me, I've given over to you. It's yours. And I, I'm not going to try to collect that debt any longer. Father, we need your help. We lose sight of the cross and its power so quickly, sometimes because our sin is so great, sometimes because we love our sin so much. And there is, you even said, there's pleasure in sin for a season, and sometimes that pleasure is intoxicating. Oh, have mercy on us, Father. Forgive us for our debts. Thank you that the Lord Jesus opened a fountain at the cross of Calvary that day that would flow freely and powerfully effectively through the generations and the blood that he shed is powerful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness thank you that you're not asking us to add something to it today whether it be a sacrifice that we might make or some good work that we might render a contribution that, that we would make you are simply saying come Father we come Lord, there's weight of debt on souls here today, though, that they never asked for. Some have been sinned against so grievously, so painfully, that it it altered life itself. And to forgive the perpetrator requires a strength of faith that they don't have in themselves. Would you give it? And would you bring them to that place where they can entrust all of that to you, where they can entrust their hearts to you? And with the same kind of mercy and grace that you have rescued them from their own sin, would you walk them into that powerful moment where they forgive another? And would you pave a beautiful pathway of restoration and reconciliation where that's possible? Would you pave a pathway of peace and joy from one heart to another? Would you heal families that are broken by sin? Would you heal marriages? Would you heal business partnerships and relationships? Would you heal? We cannot bear this weight. We cannot bear the weight of our sin, and we cannot bear the weight of unforgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have taught us to pray. Thank you that you yourself have prayed for us, even at this moment. Lead us, good shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.